dig into the big issues that are facing uh, Palestine and the Middle East. We'd like to go to our very special guests uh, who have got uh, something special to contribute. And we'd like to also hear from all of you. Um, and I know we've got uh, you know, readers and followers of Palestine Deep Dive uh, all over the globe. And so we're very keen to hear from you today. So do get ready to send in your questions. Um, and um, I'd just like to say, uh, it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to have with us uh, Noura Erekat today. Um, I'm Mark Seddon. I used to be uh, Al Jazeera's correspondent in New York. I was based at the United Nations and I went on to work for the United Nations for the Secretary General. I've had a long time interest uh, in the issues of Palestine. But we're really here today to kind of focus on some of the big issues uh, in, in a quite momentous period. Uh, times are always momentous, but what extraordinary scenes we've been seeing played out um, right across the Middle East from Afghanistan to Palestine. Um, and Nura Erekat is with us. She joins us from Philadelphia in the United States. Welcome, Nora. Thank you so much. Um, and I should just, for those of you who don't know, many of you, of course, of you will. You will follow her. You will have seen her many times, read her. But Nora is a US-based Palestinian-American activist, and she's a university professor, uh, she's a legal scholar and human rights attorney. Uh, and uh, she served as an associate professor, well, and I think you are, at Rutgers University. Uh, and uh, she's also worked at George Mason University and also Georgetown University, specializing in international studies. And Nora also, amongst all of the other things she does, is currently serving on the board of the Institute for Policy Studies and is a member of the Board of Directors of, for the Trans-Arab Research Institute and is a policy advisor with Al-Shabaka, which is the Palestinian Policy Network. And I know that many people from many of those organizations will also be joining us this evening. So um, I've just a quick message before we start. John Booth in Scotland, he says, solidarity greetings from Scotland. Anyway, thank you, John. Uh, send in your messages, send in your questions uh, to Nora. But Nora, I wonder if I could just begin by asking you, I mean, all of these questions are kind of interrelated. And yeah. my, my question really is, is, is what is your reaction uh, to the US and NATO withdrawal from Afghanistan? And in particular, you know, what, this withdrawal uh, may or may not mean to what not very long ago, you'll remember this, was being described as the new American century. Uh, what, what, are your, what are your feelings as this extraordinary event is being played out before us? Uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you to Palestine Deep Dive and your audience. It's an honor to be here. Um, I think that what you, the question that you're asking has many different pieces. There's the piece about the withdrawal. There's the piece about uh, Pax Americana, basically American empire and how it um, seeks to instill itself, um, as well as the question about the legalities of how it can do that through the language of law, right? So that, and, and, and to distinguish that from legitimacy, but oftentimes legitimacy is derived from the legality of it, which it did have in its pursuit of the invasion of Afghanistan. So if I can, let me start by just saying that my general feeling is that it's devastating. It's devastating to watch the United States withdraw um, all of its troops 
uh, at a time where it literally did not achieve any of its necessarily quote unquote military political goals, although we know that for its own interests, it did derive and it did profit tremendously. But it is quite devastating that Afghanistan has been devastated, permeated, um, denied its own um, self-determination and sovereignty, that the government that the U.S. propped up in the past two decades has been corrupt, has not represented Afghan will, and has in fact laid the groundwork for a very easy Taliban takeover, which is not to then say that I think that the U.S. should have stayed to gut the Taliban, but it's to say that this idea that any kind of intervention can produce the outcomes that we want is folly, it's short-sighted. The idea that whether it be the humanitarian intervention that we might be cynical of or other forms of intervention that we might support in the moment. So right in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide, there was a fervor, there was, there was support for external intervention operations um, that carried us through many debacles. And it's, you know, it's, it's really easy. It's really easy for people to think, well, there's something bad. There's a bad government. There's a bad dictator. You can use military force to stop it. But oftentimes what people don't consider is how much worse will it become because of the intervention? Intervention doesn't end death. Intervention doesn't end destruction. Intervention is simply an other course, right? Through development. So whether or not there wasn't an intervention or there was, there is no way through but through. And it literally sets an other course. And that's what we, I, I really hope that if anything, we learn not the lesson of how the US withdrew or when it withdrew or how it withdrew, but should it have invaded ever and at well, all? If, if I may, what, what we see in a lot of the um, mainstream media, certainly in the UK, I don't know about uh, the US is a lot of, uh, breast beating and uh, sort of uh, uh, complaints about a shambolic withdrawal, huge anger towards a shambolic withdrawal. Uh, but at the same time, much of this same media was really quite happy to maintain, was to either to support the military intervention in the first place and also to continue to do so when you know trillions of dollars, $2.3 trillion was spent uh, in the Afghan war and 271,000 lives were lost, 70,000 of those Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, the number of lives alone, the number of lives alone, right? And and again, this is, to, sorry, Mark, I'm cutting you off. Um, I don't know if you had it, but the idea that I think about this um, in the context of even the intervention in Libya, which was supported, right? Or calls for intervention in Syria, which I, comp I am very sympathetic to, I understand. But the thing that we don't consider is that once there is intervention, it doesn't mean that death and destruction ends just because a particular despot, whether it was Gaddafi or whether it's uh, Al-Assad, right, are removed, that that kind of death and destruction ends. It doesn't. There is going to be a different pathway through death and destruction. The question is, which one are we choosing? Which one is going to be the best in the long term? Which one empowers a local population in order to take the reins of their own life to control uh, their destinies, right? Mm -hmm. And we haven't had 
the chance to bear that out because we get really frantic in the moment of, well, doing something is better than doing nothing at all. And that's not always the case. And it's a really difficult question to ask. What we can do in this moment is derive lessons, Mm. right? What lessons did we learn here? What would have been the counterfactual here? Um, What what were the um, alternative outcomes? Now, as for the amount of money spent, I mean, we all know that money was not wasted because it was meant in the first place to benefit and to profit a U.S. Uh, military industrial complex, who, which is now, you know, very well off and continues to profit from war and instability. And so nobody is talking about that waste of money because that money was never meant in order to rebuild a country for itself, but instead is, is, is built to, to continue a war machine. It's interesting what you're saying, Nora, because in many respects, you know, you could look at what's happened over the past 20, 30 years and look at liberal interventionism. You could look at the fact that there was a UN resolution after 9-11 for counterinsurgency measures, not for regime change in Afghanistan. But all that has happened since, you know, liberal interventionism, state building, uh, uh, whether it be, as you were saying, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya or ostensibly too in Syria, Where's it all left? Uh, Where's it all left these countries? Um, uh, at the same time, you know, liberal you know this better than anybody else. Liberal interventionism didn't seem to really uh, be meant for the Palestinians, did it? Nobody was prepared to liberally intervene to help the Palestinians. Uh, um, know, indeed, of- and I think I think here, you know, um, to really think about this question of just to scale it back because you mentioned the UN Security Council resolution. I just want to emphasize to people, the United States actually went to war in Afghanistan within a legal framework, right? Unlike the war in Iraq, Mm -hmm. it did have authorization from the Security Council and Security Council 1368 and 1373, which expanded the US's right to use force against non-state actors. This was unprecedented up until this moment in 2001 the US and the Security Council in general had reserved the right for states to use force against other states in self-defense and had considered any violence meted by non-state actors as criminal and terroristic to be combated through law enforcement or police policing operations, but not military operations. So this is a a precedent-setting moment. And the AUMF basically provides that legal justification for the U.S. to continue to expand what is not only a seemingly endless war on terror, but one that's not geographically contained, Mm -hmm. right? And one in which, because the U.S. is insisting upon, um, you know, its unique nature, right, is not uh, where the war making are creating new laws of war that are shrinking protections for civilians. So that's one. Number two, this idea of liberal interventionism, which you know gains fervor and support, especially after what people saw was a failure to stop a genocide in Rwanda, and propagated by you know Mount, you know talking heads um, and you know Obama former uh, members of the Obama administration, you know, the ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Powers, this idea that the failure to intervene to stop the war, uh, the genocide in Rwanda then became the lesson that next time we will, we will intervene, right? Except that wasn't the the lesson necessarily we should have learned. Maybe the lesson that we should have learned was what did French intervention and colonialism in Rwanda preceding its withdrawal 
how did it lay the groundwork where it divided and ruled um, and stratified different Tutsi peoples, mm-hmm. like the, um, excuse me, different um, Rwandan peoples, like the Tutsis um, and the Hutus, right? There are always lessons to learn. Which lessons are we learning? That last thing on this well, is the laws. I'd say to you on, on, on that, you know, there's, there are historical reasons, the, the, the colonial um, reordering uh, and creation of boundaries, uh, imperialism, uh, uh, gave rise to many of these uh, problems. I suppose a lot of people would turn around and say to you, well, you know, well, we were trying to solve them. And the failure Always. of Rwanda uh, would demonstrate, you know, that that did not work. But of course, when it came to Afghanistan and Iraq, um, they didn't really bother to actually put a cover to it i mean that came afterwards i mean you know the the afghanistan um attack you know, the attacks the bombing on afghanistan was not about putting girls into school i mean it was take ostensibly to take out bin laden you know who had actually been on the payroll of the cia for many many years i mean it's just i mean look we you know we know this is a kind of um it's kind of messy and it's been and it's failed uh, well, again, still, I suppose, Nora. The question I got to you is: is you know, still, you know, people are looking to the to the U.S. administration to kind of you know try and solve the situation in Palestine, Israel, Palestine. But what faith can there be in them doing it? I'm not sure which people are looking to the United States to do that. Right? U.S. is superpower. Uh, the U.S. has been it. You know, it's self declared only a unilateral broker for peace in a bilateral and bilateral negotiations has placed itself and the question of Palestine within a particular framework that has made it absolutely an anathema to any other state power to negotiate. Who's going to, nobody wants it. Mm-hmm. Nobody, it's not that, you know, the United States is not letting other states step up and take over its role as broker, nobody wants it. It's the, the, the way that the stage has been set is it is a losing, um, it, it's a losing equation. Now that said, right? That said, that's why there's the diplomatic intransigence where most world powers are mostly content with containing the question of Palestine, with making apartheid more tolerable, with making mm-hmm. occupation and settler colonialism more acceptable, with creating a little bit of you know breathing room but not nobody's intent or cares necessarily to resolve it because this isn't this isn't rocket science the resolution to the palestinian question has been presented multiple times over since 1917 in many iterations in the most common iterations that we have even if you think about you know in 1947 out of the un special committee on Palestine, what comes out of that is three proposals for a bilateral state, a federal state, and a, a two states, right? We also know that there were ways that were acceptable and unacceptable um, and, and not necessarily legal. And then in, in, even in the post-1967 framework, even if you limit it to that, there have been multiple proposals presented that have been obstructed. So this really is about political will, and about the fact that there is no political will to actually challenge the United States in its propping up of Zionist settler colonization, right? But most people who are who have been involved in this, I'm sure your audience, which is learned, um, is not looking to the United States. They want the United States out of the way. 
not in the way. They don't want the United States to do more. They want the United States to do less. The Israel could not possibly, unequivocally, this is not fancy on my part, the United Israel could not um, sustain international critique at the Security Council, could not sustain international inquiry from international tribunals, could not even sustain financially the ability to continue expanding its settler colonial um, project, could not sustain war making across the Middle East, which has been incessant, incessant with different Middle Eastern countries, could not sustain any of that without the United States' unequivocal financial, military, and diplomatic backing. Yes. So, Nora, that, that amounts to something like, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, 3.5 billion or more every year. 3.8. 3.8 billion. It's gone Courtesy up. Courtesy of the Obama administration. Interesting. And so, you know, we're, we're looking at this kind of reset that didn't just begin with Biden, but but with Trump in Afghanistan. Um, we're looking at a Biden administration that is actually prepared to look down you know, face down some of its critics and say, sorry, we're not interested in permanent wars. We had to get out. Um, maybe they're not going to admit that it was shambolic. They didn't know, they say, because they had all this expensive intelligence that didn't tell them that the Afghan army was essentially a ghost army. But what That's we not true. To... They told them many times. They told them, journalists told them. This, yeah, was, absolutely. this was a I mean, willful was denial. Nora, I was in a bookshop today. I, I saw books that were, you know, written back in ten years ago. You know, the Afghanistan, the West defeat, or whatever. I mean, all of this is kind of. But, but I suppose what I'm trying to get to is, is what we've seen is a, is a reset of U.S. foreign policy has happened. Uh, but you know, real politic, real politic has intervened. But we also saw last week President Biden meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister Bennett, and there was no reset there at all. And in fact, it looked to, to many people uh, watching all of this that actually Biden was actually intensifying this relationship with the Israeli government, maybe grasping at straws. You know, this is we've had this terrible defeat in Afghanistan, but at least we can rely on Israel. So he committed to opening this diplomat, you know, the diplomatic um, mission in Jerusalem. I mean, the, the, the language he was using was it was. Trump-like, actually, uh, in many respects, people might say. So, you know, what 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 do you think about that? What do you think the Biden administration is any better or any worse than Trump when it comes to Israel-Palestine? So I think, you know, let's just be really, really clear. For the activists, right, who the progressive activists who mobilized to get Trump out, it was not about getting Biden in. It was about getting Trump out because they saw Trump as an outright fascist who was mobilizing white supremacists who were armed and protected across the United States. And what would happen in the United States, obviously, as global superpower can easily percolate and, and expand to the rest of the world. So most of the progressive activists who did mobilize and support getting Trump out had no illusions that Biden was any better, right? These are, these are two forms of neoliberal empires right? One which is more blatantly fascistic and another one which is much more liberal in its language and has convinced masses of people that neoliberalism actually works and those that it fails just need to work harder. Obviously seeing the state collapse in Lebanon 
I wish we could see more of it. I wish the world could see more of it because it is the absolute end of the logic, right? Of privatization of public goods and privatization of what the state should otherwise, uh, otherwise afford its people. So that's on, on, the, on the first point. So nobody had any illusions that Biden was gonna be better. And even if, because there were some distinctions, obviously, he repealed the Muslim ban, right? He reinstated um, UNRWA funding, um, something in, in the amount of $364 million a year, critical funding for Palestinian refugees, right? So there were distinctions from the Trump administration. However, however, there's no meaningful distinction because the U.S., as far as it's concerned, its relationship with Israel remains non-negotiable, even though there is protest finally for the first time, this is unprecedented, in U.S. Congress that is actually questioning the U.S. support for Israel. On your issue of reset, so I have a different take on this. I think that the United States um, is resetting its relationship with Israel. It is rehabilitating uh, a very poor image that Israel got because of Netanyahu's very close relationship to Trump and Netanyahu's personal antagonism with Barack Obama, right? In contrast, right, he, he antagonized the liberals because he was trying to undermine the first black US president by, by you know, um, uh, uh, unraveling the Iran rapprochement deal. And we saw him cozying up to Trump, which illuminated for people who had never paid attention that anybody who is a friend of Trump's must also be evil, right? So when Bennett meets with Biden, as they did last week, there was a reset. And the reset was to put them back on some liberal course where most U.S. liberals can now say, okay, let's go back to this two-state paradigm and the Oslo framework, which is a sham, which is a sovereignty trap and basically a way to subjugate Palestinians at the bill, you, you know, by footing the bill to the international community and through the farcical language of, of peace and negotiations. So I think that that is what they were trying to do and what activists tried uh, have been doing as they you know we saw in New York yesterday as we saw in DC last week through uh, Palestinian youth movement not not within our lifetime massive protests in order to say no this is not real can you tell right. us about those protests because many people around the, around the world may not have heard about them or seen them what was happening so the protests last week by the Palestinian youth movement, the U.S. Palestinian Community Network, right? These are the grassroots activists who have been doing the work for decades, right? They're the ones who are shifting. They're the reason there is something called a squad that can talk about Palestine in Congress is because of the work of activists on the ground who have, building, who have been building networks with Filipino communities who have also endured US imperial wars, with Hawaiian communities who are resisting settler colonial expansion on sacred sites, with black communities who, have, who are leading us in unprecedented forms of black uprisings. We haven't seen something like this since 1968, right? Who are in, in, in solidarity with indigenous communities who are resisting climate change and saving their lands and all of our waters from you know, um, Minnesota, to Standing Rock. And so it's these, it's these relationships that activists have built on the ground where now when Palestinians are protesting against Israel, there is an understanding that this is not about an issue over there, but that US support for Israel is a, a significant pillar 
in US politics, in US race making in the United States, in US war making abroad. Um, and so the protests last week, even though they didn't get a lot of attention, obviously indicated by your question, and yesterday, uh, the ones last week were against the Bennett meeting, right, to say that Bennett was not welcome in Washington, D.C. Um, and the one yesterday was to insist and to amplify the call to bring our children home because of the 81 corpses that Israel is holding hostage. Even oh, no, that's actually death. a question I've got, Nora. Um, James in London asks, uh, Nora, please can you tell us more about Israel's withholding of Palestinian martyrs' body, bodies. Is it true that they have 80-plus Palestinian bodies in their vaults? Is this legal? Can you give us some background to all of this and tell us what, 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 what's been going on? Uh, so this is not necessarily a new Israeli policy. This is an, um, but it's not necessarily old either. But Israel has been withholding the bodies of slain Palestinians and wants to, and they hold them at a morgue at Tel Aviv University, which illuminates for us how um, academic Israeli institutions are implicated and should be legitimate targets of academic boycott. Um, I want to emphasize that. Um, and they have held on to them as bargaining chips so that they can then retrieve the bodies of Israeli soldiers that are held by Hamas. Now, this is much more complicated than, you know, what meets the eye. Number one, the numbers are absolutely obscured. Number two, the slain Palestinians weren't, weren't deputized, weren't soldiers. They were killed by Israeli officers, like my cousin, who was shot six times above the waist in two seconds on his sister's wedding, trying to cross a checkpoint, dividing two Palestinian cities. Right. And yet anybody, because Palestinians are already always presumed to be a terrorist threat until proven otherwise, their bodies um, are withheld under the precept that they were would be assailants, even though there is absolutely no justification or evidence for this. So you've got also an asymmetry in the fact that Israel is killing civilians, holding them, accusing them of being um, terrorists and then wanting to, to um, exchange the bodies with Hamas in that way, even though there is no uh, precedent to this, if they mm -hmm. want to hold on to soldiers' bodies um, or you know, different um, militant bodies that were you know, killed in combat, maybe there would be a discussion for this, uh, but this doesn't, this doesn't have any parallel. Number three, and here's where this matters also, right? The Israeli Knesset actually just changed its policy before the, the policy of withholding Palestinian bodies was restricted to those who are Hamas members. So there was an explicit policy of holding on to the bodies of Hamas members for this purpose. Only recently, I think in the past two years, did they expand it and they say not just Hamas, but mm -hmm. any Palestinians. Um, and so no, there is no precedent. No other country does this. This is not legal. If there was something to be said for the withholding of, you know, in, in the laws of war, there is an idea of prisoner exchange. Um, and so there might be the idea of exchanging the bodies of soldiers, but this is quite cruel and extends far beyond just withholding the bodies. It's also about denying the Palestinian families the right to bury their slain. 
It's also about the fact that Palestinians who are accused of terrorism are collectively punished because their families' homes are destroyed. It's also about the fact that when Palestinian bodies are returned, there are restrictions on what the funerals look like, how many people can attend the funerals, and oftentimes they're returned in the middle of the night. So this extends far beyond just the policy of the withholding of the bodies and goes into this entirely new realm of, you know, the necropolitics of apartheid Israel. Well, I'll tell you what, Nora, as, yes, as well that, I'm thinking about many of the guests we've had on uh, over the past year, and we've often explored um, apartheid South Africa and made comparisons with apartheid in Israel. Uh, and what has become apparent uh, over the over the months and talking to various guests uh, is that this apartheid in, in Israel is is really so pernicious and so developed and so extreme. Um, and, and also there appears to be a greater understanding uh, um, and knowledge of it, um, not enough to shape governments, but certainly to inform um, interested citizens globally. Uh, and I suppose my question is, is with Biden and this reset that we were talking about, uh, and yet the meeting with Netanyahu, where everything seemed to be affirmed to be the same. Um, is, there, is there any real change going on? I mean, we know that with the Democratic Party at the youth level, the activist level, it's changed. You talked about the squad. But why isn't this feeding through? Why isn't, why isn't Biden laying down the law more with the Israelis? Um. Let me see, how do we answer this question? Uh, there's, there's, the quick, there's the quick answer, which is to tell you that Biden is outdated. Biden is the face of the Democratic Party of, of yesterday. He is completely outdated. And so he is not in lockstep with the future of the Democratic Party, which is very progressive, where recent Gallup polls have demonstrated for us that um, de progressive Democrats are more sympathetic to Palestinians than they are to Israel, which is also unprecedented. So one, it's he never represented, right, anything new. Um, and in fact, the DNC in and of itself is also quite, quite stale. And the risk is whether or not the DNC itself will not fracture. Um, they were the ones, it wasn't a Biden policy, it was the DNC policy that determined that, you know, the U.S. Embassy will not be returned from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, which one of which was one of tr the Trump administration's most co controversial policies, right? Mm -hmm. um, they endorsed that it should stay in Jerusalem. They also endorsed the Abraham Accords, which are basically security pacts or recognition pacts between authoritarian regimes in order to strengthen the U.S.'s presence. So one is he's he's not in lockstep, right? Most young people were and and people of color were in support of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. He was the democratic establishment's choice. He was the safe choice of returning to the status quo ante. That's one part. The other part is Israel benefits the United States. It's not that, you know, there's oftentimes, and I find it really, really short-sighted and absolutely, you know, I, want, I don't want to be, yeah, I guess I could be mean. I find it really short-sighted and, and, and nonsensical that people accuse Israel 
of, of controlling the United States. That's just not true. Yes, the Israeli lobby has significant influence, but it's not as influential as the National Rifle Association, for example. So let us not overinflate its influence in the United States. Most of the time, what the US is doing in the Middle East that benefits Israel is also benefiting the United States. There have been exceptional moments of diversions. So for example, the Iraq war, or, or where Israel was really supportive of the Iraq war or Iranian rapprochement where Israel was opposed to Iranian rapprochement. But most of the time, right, that you, the US is serving its own interests that happens to serve Israel's interests. They're, they're in alignment. Mm. The US is a settler, is a settler colony, you could, right? You could call it a special relationship, Nora. By the way, in this country- As, as they like have. To, in this country, people like to believe there is one, but I'm- um, Many of us actually think there is a special relationship. It's not with Britain, it's with Israel. But look, I've got this company. James in London says, thank you so much, Nora. You're a phenomenal beacon of hope, resilience, and truth. Um, and, and here's a, here's a uh, uh, our great friend, Roger Waters has sent the message as well. He just says, I just wanted to reinforce Nora's support for Lubna Katami and all our friends in the Palestinian youth movement. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Hi, Roger. Yeah, Roger and yeah, three, three, and three, lifting three, three, up Lubna. You know, yeah. I, but on the mention of Lubna, um, I, I want to also say that she is part of a generation of pal young Palestinian leaders who have been doing this work tirelessly um, without, you know, nobody's coming to ask them what they should do, right? Because everybody pivots to the Palestinian leadership. But she is part of an entirely new generation of Palestinians who have been doing this work for a long time. There's even generations after them. And significantly, um, a significant number of them are women. So Lubna is also part of an initiative called the Palestine Feminist Collective. There is in Palestine um, an initiative called Talaat. There is also Al-Qaus. So the, there have been also in our, in our time, we are being led um, by a phenomenal group of women and queer kin in our movement who are oftentimes, most of the time, not even oftentimes, most of the time, not the ones who are recognizing it. They're the ones doing the work on the ground that we then get to opine about and talk about. Mm. Nora, I just, I mean, a lot of people are quite curious about this because you talked about the symbiotic relationship between the United States and Israel um, and the lobbies and what have you. I mean, APAC, many of us have heard about APAC. Um, but the question is, how is it? How is it so influential? Why is it still? Why does it still continue to be so influential? And why, with people such as yourself and all of the movements and the Palestinian diaspora, the Arab diaspora in America, why isn't the Palestinian lobby as powerful, if not more so, in terms of its influence on legislators? So again, Mark, you have to let me answer, give me time to answer this question because this is multi-layered, right? Because there's questions about how Palestinians are organizing themselves. There's a question about how power works and social transformation works. And there's a question about APAC specifically, right? So mm -hmm. again, let me emphasize, let me start with the end with APAC. APAC is not exceptional. It's not even the most significant lobby in the United States. There have been um, massive school shootings in the United States, children, American children, have been repeatedly killed while they were pursuing their primary education and US Congress cannot manage to pass gun reform laws, right? 
this is also because of, of the influence of lobby. So it's less about the power of the lobby and more about the broken nature of a U.S. government that is so per, uh, um, susceptible to this kind of special interest groups, right? Most members of Congress are elected and immediately begin fundraising for the next election cycle. So we have, um, we have a problem. We have a problem and we have a Supreme Court that has exacerbated this problem when it ruled in Citizens United that corporations are like people and therefore have First Amendment rights and how much uh, money that they can spend. So we have a problem that is, is, is in, endemic in the political system and supported by the judiciary. So that's one just on the lobby. The second, I wanna emphasize this over and over again. This is not about what APAC does. This is about what the United States wants. The US is a white settler colony. The US is continuing to expand its territorial takings within the contiguous, you know, 48 um, states, as well as Hawaii, where it maintains the largest military base that actually oversees 30% of the world's population from the island of Oahu, right? The U.S. wants to maintain that control over the Pacific Rim and has denied the Kanaka Maoli, the indigenous nation of Hawaii, of governing itself and actually usurped Hawaiian sovereignty, which is why Hawaiians have been leading both a movement against settler colonization and a movement to end the, their own occupation, as are indigenous nations in, you know, in Minnesota, as well as at Standing Rock, who are also resisting expanding uh, territorial takings. It has not ended. The U.S. is overseeing the subjugation of Black populations as a racial as a, I don't want to say caste in, in comparison to Indian caste systems, but as a racial class, right? So all these things that we want to say about Israel, it's apartheid, it's racist, it's taking Palestinian lands, it's cruel, it's propagandistic, it's a nuclear power, it's a military power. The U.S. is a reflection of that. They are supporting one another. There is a reason that the United States is deflecting the entire conversation about anti-Semitism from its root of white supremacy, which we still have not addressed, right? European white supremacy, Western European white um, supremacy, as well as US uh, white supremacy, but to reflect that entire conversation onto the question of Palestine, where now it becomes a Muslim um, antagonism towards Jews. Nora, listening to you, it's almost as though you're saying that America hasn't really grown up. I mean, the British were forced out of um, settler entities in Kenya and Rhodesia and the Portuguese out of Angola and and the Afrikaners realized the real deal in South Africa and did a deal but America has yet to grow up it's fascinating what you're saying but look I've got a couple there's a question here this is from Alex Bustos um Alex, Alex says hi Nora it's so great to hear from you tonight what hope do you have for the International Criminal Court's investigation into Israel and the Palestinian territories and what advice would you have for activists who are looking to it for justice in Palestine? Um, so on the ICC and any international, um, any international legal efforts, those efforts are not the silver bullet and are only as powerful as the political movement that's underpinning it. So I actually think the way that the ICC, the Palestinian uh, leadership has led 
the ICC bid has been quite insufficient because it's overly reliant on a legalistic approach um, in a way where it should be very much thinking about the political strategy in order to win this battle, even outside the courtroom, even should it lose it within the courtroom. The ICC is an incredibly political entity, right? It's prosecutors that are elected are, are basically ascending in their own uh, career path and want to look, they're not, gonna, they're not going to torpedo their own career. The ICC itself is beholden to US funding. It's now between a rock and a hard place where since its establishment, it has only prosecuted African heads of state and Slobodan Milosevic so that um, the global South countries have include uh, several African union countries have withdrawn from the Rome statute and said the ICC is illegitimate because it's a tool of the strong against the weak. Meanwhile, the, the, the strong countries, the US and Israel aren't even state parties to the Rome statute, but are still uh, threatening to torpedo the entire ICC. So the, the, the ICC is, is, if it prosecutes Israel, will be punished. If it doesn't prosecute Israel, it will be punished, right? So here we have to think about, well, what then should be the strategy moving forward? For folks, think there's never going, to, we're never going to see Netanyahu on the stand. Do not put your hopes in that, right? If you want to see Netanyahu on the stand, have a mock trial, in your community and actually use it as a way to raise awareness for everyone else. Well, right? no, we have the same thoughts about Tony Blair, of course, but I mean, that's a, a slightly- Do one for him too. The idea was some of us entertained the thought he might just land in Damascus one day, unfortunately for him, and be taken off the aircraft and tried. But anyway, look, here we have, a, this is a question for Tash in Manchester. And she says, um, Nora, Please, can you shed some light on the situation of the Palestinian mother being forced to give birth in an Israeli prison right now? I believe her name is Anha. How can Israel get away with this? Do you know about this case? This is Anha Adik. Yes, she is a woman, uh, a mother who has been accused again and other accusation without an appropriate trial of um, a, a would-be assailant, and therefore is now about an imminent in the imminent process of about, she's about to give birth in an Israeli prison, probably shackled. Um, she'll have only a few choices after the child is born. One is for the child to remain in prison with her up until three years old. The other is for the child to be taken away. It is absolutely cruel and inhumane. What's right? she, it's, it's Israeli military courts. So one, it isn't actually a real trial, but the accusation is that she was a would-be assailant, that she was gonna stab somebody in a settlement, right? Um, but as, as different UN bodies have found, the US, Israel in these, in these cases has been judge, jury, and executioner because it has not presented any evidence when it accuses Palestinians of being would-be assailants. It's more of a preemptive uh, use of uh, force. The other thing that we know about Anhad or what I understand is that she also um, endures mental health issues. So she should be getting care. So assuming that any of this is true, she's not necessarily, she shouldn't be criminalized in this way, but getting care because she's a mother. Thing I want to emphasize and end with, this is absolutely cruel and Hot is not the first nor the last to endure this as a, as a Palestinian mother. The cruelty to Palestinian mothers, including recently Khaleda Jarrar, who couldn't mourn, who couldn't attend her own daughter's funerals is really untold. But again, I wanna de-exceptionalize Israel. It's not alone in having this process. In fact, 
the United States has the same practice. It shackles women to their prison beds when uh, women inmates give birth. So this is not unique and it's quite endemic. And as, as um, you know, Professor Priscilla Osen, a professor of critical race theory has demonstrated, it can t- be traced to the practice of enslaved black women in the United States and the way that they were criminalized and seen as would be threats, the way that they were denied their, even their femininity and these ideas that, you know, patriarchy often wants to protect women in ways that oppress them and in case is like black women and 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 here we have Palestinian women. Even that patriarchal control is 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 pushed to the side and in, in ways where Palestinian women, black women, are seen as threats first. So again, another form of cruelty. And the work that we have to do is is it's to speak on it, but not necessarily to exceptionalize it, but to condemn it in all of its forms, and frankly, to condemn prisons in general. Well, no one should be. I, I hear what you're saying about not exceptionalizing it, but of course, as you know, you know, an individual case and people are identifying with a particular person and their story is often very, very powerful because it really does bring it home to people. Because sometimes people frankly can't believe that pregnant women would be shackled to a bed. It's just perverse. But look, we've got no, to- no, no. We obviously should, we should drive this home with personal stories, but I guess I'm speaking to an audience that is located in North America. Right, an audience that constantly wants to condemn what Israel is doing, but then you know to, uh, exalt the United States and 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 wanting to be better. And what I'm emphasizing here is we cannot disentangle our struggles. Mm. There is no freedom for one. There will be freedom for all, and we should keep that in mind as we protest this policy, not just for Palestinian women, but for all women. Yeah. Well, look, Dave Chappell. I think Dave is up in the northeast of England. Um, Uh, But Dave sends this uh, question to you, Noura. With more and more revelations about the insidious and criminal warmongering role of Israeli arms and covert intelligence companies, do you see a tipping point coming in terms of the wider international community's attitude to Israel? And do you think, Noura, uh, that direct action needs to be more active, uh, e.g. Palestine action in the UK, to promote... uh, boycott, divest, and sanctions on a wider level. So I want to give a big ups to Palestine Action and to all the direct action that's been done against Elbit. This is actually what produces controversy, right? It's not necessarily change, but it produces controversy. Why did these activists do this? Then it becomes, you know, should they be prosecuted? Should they not be prosecuted? You have now created the space to have a discussion. There are now rooms, room for op-eds, for news cycles to have a discussion that otherwise wouldn't be had to interrogate, right? What are these military contractors doing? How are they profiting, right? Um, and, And how... To those, how do those war-making processes over there come back to forms of policing and you know domestic policing, whether it be in the UK, as Adam Elliott Cooper has shown us, as they, uh, Lale Khalili has shown us, or in the United States, as Deepa Kumar has shown us and others have shown us, that these become incorporated, Nadine and Neber, become incorporated into local law enforcement where counterinsurgency that is perfected in foreign on foreign soil actually becomes forms of domestic policing. So yes, the long story is, I think it's absolutely critical. I applaud you. And I think that we should continue that work. 
not because it produces a direct outcome, but because it produces the conditions where we can then pursue the outcomes we desire. As for the tipping point, there are no vested interests. I think most profit-making um, entities will burn this entire earth and still be looking at their profit margins rather than be looking at you know, a holistic approach of whether or not you know, humanity is going to survive. So they are not the ones. It's going to be a particular human conscience, right? A spiritual mm -hmm. conscience about are we going to survive or should we just let this earth go um, and, and, and hop on a, a rocket to Mars? So that only a few can survive. Nora, what we've seen, I mean, I just, for what it's worth, I was thinking back to 21 years ago when um, some of us were in Trafalgar Square here in London and we were, mm. uh, we were warning that, um, that a war in Afghanistan <laughs> would probably lead to disaster and it shouldn't happen for all right. those reasons. Uh, we stood there and actually the mainstream media, the political class, they were absolutely in step. This had to happen. There was a can we're going, Bin Laden and the Taliban. We're going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. This is a counterinsurgency operation. All of those who were against it were in somehow in cahoots with the Bin Laden, all of this old, old nonsense. But what I'm saying is that back then, 20 odd years ago, we had very, very little um, in the way of so well, we had there was no social media. That we had a few newspapers, you know, we could have demonstrations, we could. Uh, but, you know, unless the mainstream media was prepared to report us, which they usually weren't, um, because demonstrations took place on a Saturday, they would say there was 10,000 people instead of 100,000. You know, it's, it was very, very difficult. But what there is now, as you know, is this the power of social media and the power of, of voices around the world. So do you feel a bit more, you know, do you feel a bit more confident, a bit buoyed up by that power that we all have as citizens, as citizen journalists, if you like? I, Mark, I, I was there also 21 years ago, right? And I think that Afghanistan was a much tougher argument to make. My heartbreak was at the Iraq war, where there really wasn't a justification for war. It was preventive war making. Mm. There was not no legality, no legality, no legitimacy. Even after there were no weapons of mass destruction produced, it didn't create a moment of, of reckoning, right? People have no idea that, that, you know, the thing that they lament as ISIS is actually produced as a result of the destruction and the gutting of Iraqi state and its infrastructure, government and military um, infrastructure. Not that I'm defending it, but obviously there, there are, again, there are lessons to be learned. I teach my students you know, in class, most of them don't even know about the Iraq war, not the first, not the second one, not the sanctions regimes, right? There is a particular amnesia. Now, all of that said, what I will also say is that, yes, uh, even, you know, notwithstanding my pessimism, I've seen a, a tremendous change in my own lifetime, a tremendous change of the fact that I teach at a university is <laughs> an indicator of that. And it's also because of the movement work that we've been doing. The fact that we have um, you know, a presidential candidate who talked about conditioning aid to Israel uh, mm -hmm. or support for Israel, because they don't need aid. Support for Israel is an indication of that. The fact that in this last Palestinian intifada of unity, it was a major shift. It was literally mm -hmm. a sea change. We saw more people speak out in this last iteration than we have ever seen before. Folks who, you know, will tell you quietly, I support you. 
right? But would never say anything publicly for fear of punishment. We're out and out, right? And so I do see that change. And yeah. I do want to say, I do think it's because of social media. I do think it's because of the movement work. I do think it's because of all of our efforts. What is the distance between this kind of change in our media coverage, in our public imagination and actual change on the ground, that that bridge that we still need to build is quite unknown, will be contingent on a number of unknown factors that are not you know, in our hand. They could be catastrophes, they could be another war, but they we have to be prepared for them. Mm-hmm. We have to be prepared for them um, to continue pushing. I think in the case of Israel, and this is where I get my hope from, it's doing the work for us. Mm. Israel is unapologetic. Israel wants to maintain an absolutely stark apartheid regime without any kind of remorse. It calls that apartheid regime, you know, it it calls it, you know, somehow a form of of its uh, national liberation, which makes absolutely no sense. No harsh racist regime has ever survived um, without you on those stark terms. And so I think it's torpedoed the possibility of a Palestinian state. I think it's, you know, brought to life its most right wing government that it's even um, ever known, even though all of its governments are right wing. But this one happens to be so extreme that it's alienating American Jews and I'm sure British um, Jewish Zionists as well. And so I think that it's doing the work for us, where now they can't say, well, we don't have a partner for peace, which was a talking point for decades, right? Or, oh, we're negotiating. Now they've said there will never be a Palestinian state. We don't want to negotiate. Palestinians can remain here as supplicants, but can never be sovereign and can never be equal. Hmm. Now it's up to an international community that sees that to say, well, the conversation shouldn't be about, right? This joke you know, this farce of whether Israel is uh, defending itself or whether Palestinians are are the assailants or not, the conversation really needs to be about is Zionism as the proposed solution to uh, anti-Semitism worth the price Mm -hmm. of the ethnic cleansing and the removal of an entire other people. That's the conversation we need to have. Absolutely. But as you know very, very well, this is the conversation precisely they don't want us to have. But that's that's where we're inching towards. And that's where it's going. That's where we're inching towards. And that's That's the most honest conversation. Because then you're going to defend. You can either say it's worth it or you can say it's not worth it, but mm. you can't hide behind these smoke and mirrors and talk about, but Hamas and the rockets and the assailants, and that can't be the conversation. That can't be the conversation. We have to get to the root cause of this. And the root cause is really answering the question, is Zionism as the proposed response to anti-Semitism worth the elimination of an entire nation of people the removal from their homes and their continuing subjugation. Absolutely. Well, look, thank you very, very much, Nora. Unfortunately, we are drawing to the end now. Um, look, there are a few messages here. Jenny Hardacre says, hooray for the activists, those in the UK. Please go to show support of their court cases at Snaresborough Crown Court okay. and Thameside Magistrates. Bravo, Nora, says Najat Elkari. Uh, this is the core of the problem, of the issue. Um, 
there are lots of other there are other questions we just don't have time for sadly but we'd love to have you back nora we're very very grateful for you coming on with us this evening so thank you very very much before we go um i've just got to say one other thing uh, which is that many of you joining us today will of course be subscribers to the palestine deep dive daily newsletter uh, which obviously delivers some of the biggest stories concerning Palestine to your inboxes every day. Um, and every Tuesday, we hand over our Palestine Deep Dive newsletter to a partner organisation whose work we wish to amplify. And this week, it's Build Palestine. And Build Palestine, for those of you who don't know, works with the most effective and innovative social enterprises in Palestine to advance their work, amplify their impact, and connect them with needed support and resources from around the world. So please, um, if you haven't subscribed, um, please share this discussion interview with uh, Nora Erekat this evening. It's been, it's been fantastic, Nora. Thank you so much for joining us from Philadelphia. Thank you for your wisdom. Uh, thank you for your civility. Thank you for your humor. Uh, thank you for your intelligence. Um, and we would love to have you back again. Please join us. Look, it says here 10 new messages. I'm never going to go through all of those in time. Um, this is uh, lots of people saying, Jenny Hardacre, thanks so much. Excellent. John Booth, thank you for an excellent meeting. Zoha Inovici, thanks, Nora. Um, uh, thank you for the fantastic interview. Najat Alkari, Harold Schuster, thank you so much for this wonderful hour of insight and hope. Maureen Purcell says thank you. Well, thank you to all of you for your questions, for joining uh, us this evening. And thank you, of course, to Nora. Uh, so until next time from Nora 